On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women, or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. On this episode of Complicated Conversations, we are thrilled to welcome Marissa Meyer, the number one New York Times bestselling author of the Lunar Chronicle series, the Renegades trilogy, The Wires and Nerve graphic novels, and the Lunar Chronicles coloring book. Her first standalone novel, Heartless, was also a number one New York Times bestseller, and now Cursed, the sequel to her young adult retelling of Rumpelstiltskin that began in Gilded, is out now. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Marissa. Hello, thank you for having me. We're very excited excited to talk about this one, yeah. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about Cursed? Sure. So Cursed is the sequel and conclusion to Gilded. As you mentioned, it is my retelling of Rumpelstiltskin. And Rumpelstiltskin was one of my favorite fairy tales when I was growing up. I loved how creepy and weird it was because as kids, I think we are all drawn to things that are creepy and weird. And so for some reason, I I was really fond of this fairy tale, but I think part of the reason that I liked it was because I felt like it left a lot of things unrevealed. Um, Mm. And I both found this intriguing and frustrating. Mm. So for people who maybe haven't read the story in a long time, it's the one about the Miller's daughter that her dad tells the king that my daughter can spin straw into gold. The king believes it. He takes her back to the castle, locks her in a dungeon and tells her to spin straw into gold. And if she fails, he will have her. And then this little man shows up and he spins the straw for, you know, there's, she gets a ring and the next night he gets a necklace. And then on the third night, she offers him her firstborn child. The next day, she marries the king. Nine months later, she has a baby. The man shows up, says, I'll let you keep your child if you can guess my name. And through a series of trials, she does guess that his name is Rumpelstiltskin. She gets to keep the baby happily ever after, right? Okay. Yeah. But I (laughs) thought there are so many plot holes. Right. I wanted to know so much more about this Rumpelstiltskin character and like why is his name so important why does he care that why does he want the baby what is he planning to do with this child like does he is he just lonely does he just want to be a dad or is it some malevolent thing is he going to eat the child is he going to use it for black magic like what's going on here and then I also could never understand why the king just like let it go the whole spinning gold thing like clearly he only marries her because she has this talent and then what it never comes up again like he never (laughs) figures it out yeah and so I just really had a lot of questions about this story and wanted to give my own spin to and was thinking about it a couple of years ago when I was kind of stuck on a different writing project I kept running into holes on a different book and one day this idea of Rumpelstiltskin popped into my head And I thought, you know what? I think the king is the villain. I'm pretty sure that the king is evil. He threatens to kill this girl for absolutely no reason. I don't believe there's a happily ever after for her here. 
what if the king were the villain of the story and Rumpelstiltskin was the love interest? Mm-hmm. And that kind of got my imagination going and eventually developed into the story of Gilded, Gilded. in which this Miller's daughter, in my version, in Gilded, she is a very talented storyteller in part because she has been cursed by the God of Lies and in telling one of these lies, she gets carried off to the castle of the wicked Earl King. And he has kind of taken over this haunted castle that's filled with ghosts and monsters. And our Rumpelstiltskin character is the castle's very mischievous poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is the story of Gilded. And yeah. Cursed, of course, continues and finishes the Her duology. Story. Yeah, perfect segue into our first question. Yes. Yes, you know, on this podcast, we do like to start with our complicated woman. And here, Cyrilda, your lovable protagonist, who you said is a gifted storyteller, she's matured since the events in Gilded. And mm-hmm. we wanted to hear about sort of her progression and emotional development from Gilded to sort of where we're seeing her now and how you wanted to develop her in this second part of the series. Yeah, no, it was interesting. There's about a about a six-week gap or so from the end of Gilded until the start of Cursed. And Cyrilda has changed in those six weeks. She is now trapped inside the castle. She is cursed, hence the title, mm-hmm. um, and can't leave. And, and, you know, Cyrilda, she's a very optimistic character. She is one of those people, she's like, I can figure this out. Whatever the problem is, we'll find a solution. Like, she's not the sort that gives up. But after six weeks of being trapped in this castle and realizing that she is stuck in every way imaginable, she is stuck physically, she is stuck emotionally, she can't be with this guy that she's falling in love with. The people that she loved have all been taken from her and she has no idea how to rescue or save anybody. She has no idea how to break her own curse. Like, And she has tried many different things. And of course, the, the villain, the Earl King, is immortal and mm, yeah. cannot be killed. And so she just mm-hmm. feels like there's just no way out. And so we're starting at a place in for Cyrilda where she's kind of lost some of that optimism and is feeling... A little bit more hopeless than she was in the first book. But then, of course, that gives us room throughout Cursed to to have more of a progression where we get to see her kind of reclaiming some of that power over the course of the story. Yeah, she's a little she's a little jaded, a little she's got a little edge to her to start because, yeah, like Mm -hmm. she she's lost that optimism. She's really doesn't know what to do. And she's still stuck there. There's yeah. there's a moment where she stabs him and nothing happens. And you're like, it's like <laughs> Groundhog Day or Palm Springs, whatever kind of repeat story you love. And it's like, oh, well, I did that. That's nothing not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. No, and that is one of the things I love about Cyrilda. You know, it's made clear as she, she stabs him that this is not her first attempt. Yes. She has tried to yes. kill him yes. many times. And I think she is aware by that point that it's not going to work. Yeah. But she doesn't want but to give up. She just can't not take the chance. Yeah. She just can't give up that hope completely. No, that's right. Yeah, that's, I said, a little edge. So another big change for her that is revealed early on is that she is expecting. And it's mm. a very complicated situation. And she's trying to convince herself she essentially has to trade her unborn child in exchange for the freedom and lives of the five children in her care. 
So being pregnant kind of gives her protection, but it also makes her very vulnerable and desperate to break the curse. We are obsessed on this podcast with different types of motherhood, portrayals of what it means to be a mother, how we come into it, how much she loves these children that are not her own, and how she's torn with the one she's carrying and, and the complication that, that comes there. So what did you want to explore with this angle of motherhood? Yeah, I mean, just like you're, you've mentioned, I really wanted to show that there is nothing easy about this choice that she's being forced <laughs> to make. And, you know, just because the, the child that's growing inside of her is going to be her biological child, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that she loves that child more than she loves the five children that she cares already for. knows. She feels, yeah, she already mm-hmm. knows. She's, yeah. you know, in some ways helped to raise these children, and she really blames herself for what's become of them. You know, mm-hmm. she she feels that it's her responsibility to help them, and so I, I really I I like that. You know, putting I like just in general putting characters in the middle of an impossible choice and kind of Mm. seeing what they do with that and watching them, you know, start to sway one direction, but then something happens and now they're swaying the other direction. And, you know, you can, in the course of the story, you can have them moving back and forth as new information is revealed. And it just, you know, creates a lot of natural tension there. And that's as a storyteller, of course, we're always trying to build more tension. Yes. Yeah, that's great. So, of course, I have to talk about Guild as well, though we focus on on the women here. He does have this roguish charm. But this time around, too, he seems changed a bit, a little more nuanced. There's emotional scenes surrounding the loss of his memories and, and this sense of guilt. And there just seems to be more layers and, and dimension to his character here in, in Cursed. And, you know, certainly the chemistry is still there between them. It's very swoon-worthy, which I loved. But there's also tension and there's it's angsty a little bit between them as well. So I, I did want to hear more, again, like with Sorolda, same thing for Guilds, you know, where we're finding him now, what you wanted to sort of develop this time around about Guild and also their relationship and where, where we find them in this one. There's secrets between them too. Yeah. As a writer, I live for the romance. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, and of course, Cyrilda is holding the biggest secret and one that affects him greatly. So it was really tricky in book one because I, of course, knew Guild's history and I knew the backstory that even Guild himself didn't know that Cyrilda's kind of uncovering as we go through the story. And right at the end of book one is when we finally kind of have this big reveal and learn a lot about Guild just in the last couple of chapters. And so in book two, it really became a lot easier to write Guild's character because suddenly I had a lot more I could play with. Suddenly now I can talk about some of the backstory. I can talk about why his memories are missing. I can talk about these family connections that even though he can't remember them, he still feels an emotional connection to the people he's lost. And so, and plus the two of them being in the same castle and no longer being divided, the veil that separates the mortal world and the haunted realm you just have a lot more time on the page with Guild. And so it was a great opportunity to get to kind of dive into that and get into his head more. What is he experiencing? What is he feeling? And here again, we have a character who feels a lot of responsibility to the people of the castle, to his family, to his history. 
but also is in love with this girl and so badly wants to protect her and, you know, take care of her. He wants to be the hero, but he too feels trapped and stuck and like there's there's just no hope. So it was really fun to play with them, really fun to get to have some of those emotional scenes and play on that, you know, the deep yearning that they both have mm. for each other while at the same time the two of them feeling like we can't because if the Earl King were to find out, that would mean horrible things for both of us. Mm-hmm. And I, I just live for that. I love that yeah. sort of romantic tension. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Well, another thing we love that you cover or explore in Cursed is this theme of fate versus free will. Corinne said we're sort of obsessed with motherhood. Well, this is another thing we're sort of obsessed yes. with. And <laughs> I want, Me I know, too. You, you, you <laughs> cover, oh good, because... It's throughout the book, but I want to read a passage that I think is so great. The Earl King says to Cyrilda, you mortals squander away your responsibility, your free will. You believe fate is determined by old gods and superstitions and fairy tales, that every misfortune can be blamed on the moonlight, the stars, whatever ludicrous thing suits you in the moment. But that's cowardice, is it not? There is no fate, no fortune. There is only the secrets we share and those we conceal our own choices, or the fear of making a choice, which is so good. And then Cyrilda says, or thinks, perhaps there is something in between, a place for things that were out of control, things guided by destiny, but also for one's own choices. So we would love to hear about Mm -hmm. your obsession with fate versus free will, what you want to explore in it, and just where you wanted to go with this theme that we love so much too. Yeah, no, and this is, you know, the question of fate and destiny is something that comes up, I think, in all of my books in some regard, you know, how in control are we of our life? And I mean, ultimately, I think on a my personal belief is that we are in control. You know, I think that the choices we make and the way that we perceive the world around us might be the biggest factor in how we live our lives and what happens to us and, you know, the path that we take. So generally speaking, I I don't like the idea of fate and destiny in real life, but you also have to, you can't account for everything, you know, Mm -hmm. and there do things happen to us that we can't plan for and you have to just make decisions and choose your path as you go. And so I just, I love playing with that. And I love taking characters and seeing what they do when faced with things that are out of their control and seeing how they react to it and how they respond. It was particularly fun with Cyrilda and writing in this world because there is a pantheon of gods and the god that cursed Cyrilda, the god of lies, is also the god of fate and fortune. So we've already kind of established this idea this superstition in this world that she's in that some being is pulling the strings is controlling there is a there is a wheel of fortune and whether Mm -hmm. or not it spins in your favor is out of your control and so I loved having this idea that Cyrilda has grown up with that all of the people in her small town believed and you know if the crops don't do well they're very happy and content to curse the god that you know cursed them and then on the other side of the spectrum we have the earl king who really is is speaking more my personal feelings about it and so i got to have this wonderful dichotomy between the two perceptions there and put Cyril to right in the middle of it and kind of have her 
over the course of the story here again, we have her kind of going back and forth as far as what she believes and how in control she feels like she is. Yeah. That's I, so interesting because when I read that, the Earl King and then Sorelda, I was, I, you answered it though. I was going to say, which which one are you, if either? And it sounds like you're, you you were channeling the Earl King's words there. That's and a so lot of ways. Yeah. You know, it is yeah. funny that you choose that specific passage. If you're familiar, the wonderful writing book, Save the Cat, mm-hmm. um, or Save the Cat Writes a Novel, talks about having like specific plot beats for your structure of a book. And it's one of my favorite writing guides, and I refer to it all the time. And one of the beats talked about is the having your theme stated early on in the book. And that paragraph that you read was highlighted in my manuscript as the theme. Oh, and so yeah. I came back to that passage again and again as I was writing and revising, you know, to make sure, like, am I still covering this? Is this still a part of the story? Oh. Have I worked it into the complicated tapestry enough? Yeah, so I love that that oh, passage really Oh, I'm so glad that I read that then. Look at that. And Kate and I both had the same exact paragraph highlighted. So, oh, cool. so you did it <laughs> then. Yes. You clearly no, you did, did it. it. <laughs> yeah, and it was just, you know, I have later in my life tried to embrace something that tells me that I'm not in control because I'm so like, I have a white knuckle grip on life Mm -hmm. sometimes. And sometimes I'm like, okay, you know, all right, Mercury retrograde, just relax, just back off, slow down. (laughs) You know, it mostly, I just use it as an excuse to slow down a minute and, you know, surrender a little bit. But Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I'm definitely of the ilk of the Earl King. (laughs) You know, that yeah, that yeah, no, me too. And I think that, you know, wherever you fall in this belief, I think there's room to let in a little bit of the other side. You know, I, yes. I am like you. I have a very tight schedule and I plan I'm a planner. I plan out my days, my weeks, you know, if something if life throws a curveball, it takes me a second to be like, but no, I've got it all planned out. You can't, I can't change the schedule now. But life does throw curveballs all the time, especially being parents. Like things come up, things happen. You have to be a little flexible. And so for me, it comes back to, you know, knowing that there are things out of your control, knowing that fate or destiny or whatever you want to call it is going to intervene but then it depends on what choice you make and what yes. you do with that is, yes. is the deciding factor. Yeah, that's really it. It's really, okay, things might come to you, an opportunity, a tragedy, what have you, but it's really what you do with it then that that is what forms your life. That's what makes your life. It's not the thing that happened. It's what you, how you take it and, and move forward with it. So yeah. I want to come back to something that you said earlier about Elda and how she's cursed She's given the gift of storytelling, but that it has to do with lies. And so I think it's funny to think of it as truth or lies versus storytelling. Do you have thoughts about that? Like, do you ever think, oh, I'm just, my job is to make up things that are not true in any way, shape or form. And does that make me a liar in some definition of the word and do you have a a relationship with all of that yeah that is the definition of my job I make things up that is what I do (laughs) and I think it's funny though that in fiction you are telling lies you are making stuff up nothing you're saying is 
quote unquote true. true. And yet I think the best stories, no matter how fantastical they are, they have to have an element of truth in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in Narnia or, you know, Middle Earth or yes. you're in the world of Gilded or you're on a spaceship you know, in Mars. I mean, it doesn't matter what the story is that you're telling if it doesn't have some seed of truth that your readers are going to be able to to connect with and relate to and somehow apply to their real life and what they're going through, then it's probably not going to be a great story. Oh, um, yes. So I think it's both. I think that, that fiction writers, we are liars. We are just <laughs> making stuff up for the sake of entertainment. Yes. Uh, but I think that we also, part of our job is finding ways to tell the truth, but in a really safe way. You know, there's a, a veil and a disconnect from reality that then I think helps readers process and yes. really take in these truths on a really deep level. I say that mm-hmm. all the time with yes. with nonfiction and narrative memoir. Sometimes stories are very beautiful, but I tend to get wrapped up in the facts And facts are not interesting to me when I am trying to get to a deeper truth and understanding about myself and understanding about someone else and an understanding about the world. And so I always think that fiction's the the better way to do that. Um, Mm. So I I appreciate that point of view. I want to talk about November because Mm -hmm. it has a special place, I think, especially in in you getting started in your now long career publishing, right? It's NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month is -hmm. November. And it's big for so many writers, but especially for you as a golden child of of process, (laughs) right? You wrote your early drafts of three of the Lunar Chronicles in a single November, which we can talk about more, but, and you signed your first publishing deal in November. Right. So tell us about that start and what you think of when you think of that time where you're just furiously writing about Cinder and yeah. yeah. (laughs) Take us way, way, way back here. Yeah. So it was November of 2008 and I had this idea in my mind that had been kind of plaguing me for months and months, I wanted to write a series of science fiction fairy tale retellings. And I I loved this idea and I'd been, you know, just kind of daydreaming about it for a while and knew that NaNoWriMo was coming up. I had done National Novel Writing Month a couple times before with various novels that I never ended up finishing, never went anywhere. And then I heard about this contest that was going on that was like, I I live in the Seattle area and it was being hosted by, you know, someone local, the like the local writer that wrote the most words that November could win a walk-on role in an episode of Star Trek. This like new Star Trek season that they were going to be filming. Talk about incentive for you. I like totally nerded out. I was like, this is amazing. I have to win this. And so I had this idea for this four book series and thought, well, I'm just going to write as much as I possibly can. And my goal was to write 150,000 words that within those 30 days of November, the the standard NaNoWriMo goal is 50,000 words. So I was trying to triple what what most people would be doing. Yeah. Blew that out of the water. 
Yeah, and so I I planned a lot in advance. I had all of the books outlined. I did a lot of kind of world building and character development and prep work and just kind of hit the ground running come November 1st. I didn't have kids yet, so that I don't think I could do it now simply for the fact that children like take up a lot yeah. of time. But I was working full time and I was going to school for my master's degree, so it was by no means like an easy challenge, right. but I was so motivated and I would get up at four o'clock every morning and write before I had to go to work and I would write during my commute and on my lunch breaks and on the weekends and just every spare minute. And I did, I finished the month with the, the first three books of the Lunar Chronicles drafted and it came in at 150,011 words. And, and you I was didn't like, win. So I did not win. I came that third is place. What's, that's the most, most insane that's thing insane. to me. She wrote all that and third place. Third yeah. place. Third what place. did first place do? How many words? I don't know. Honestly, I don't even know if that, that's like, crazy. I think it was going to be an online thing. I don't think it was for a TV network, but I don't think they ever ended up making it. Oh, so it's kind wow. of like, well, a moot point at yeah. this point, but I ended up with a book series yes. so i, I was just gonna say one. who's the yes. winner really? exactly. exactly that's what i was gonna say yes exactly. who yeah. is the real winner <laughs> and when you look back at that time do you uh, you know think how how hungry you were how excited you were what, oh gosh yeah what <laughs> i was so hungry my whole life my whole life i wanted to be a writer since i was a little girl and I mean, there were periods I can remember bringing myself to tears, just thinking about how badly I wanted to see my name on a book cover, how badly I wanted my book on the shelves. I wanted to walk into a bookstore and see it there. I wanted to go on tour, do signings. You know, I just wanted that so bad, just mm -hmm. on a deep soul level. And yeah, and so that was, that was a driving force for me pretty much my whole life. Yeah, and here we are. <laughs> yes, I was and say, then some. the Star Trek episode was the icing on the cake, but sounds like you had some real internal motivation there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that was definitely TV. the catalyst for writing that many words in in one month. Yeah. I should point out they were not good words. Like, I don't want anyone oh, hearing whatever. this thinking like I took yeah, those three drafts and like published them like oh no it was two more years of redrafting and revising before cinder was ready to go to publishers so so it was a mess but i i was highly motivated to to get some words written that month i love it clearly so I know that your writing roots begin with fan fiction. You yes. wrote, yes. So, I mean, you said they re it really begins when you were a child, it sounds like, but which we can talk about. But but once you begot in the teen years, it was writing fan fiction. I know you wrote countless Sailor Moon fanfics and that in addition to anime, you've already mentioned your love of Star Trek, but you've talked about Star Wars and other things like you were you called yourself a fantasy girl growing up so i i feel like your intense enthusiasm as a fan really infuses your writing i i don't know if you think so i mean i just think when you i wonder when you write do you feel like you're sort of more in sync or in tune with your fans given what you feel as a fan the enthusiasm you do feel yeah so fandom does it i don't mm. I don't know how much it influences my writing. I I don't think about it all that much. But um, you do I, encourage I, I others. To. It has to. 
with how much I, I did it and I wrote so much fan fiction. I actually remember when the Lunar Chronicles was when I was getting ready to send it to agents and, you know, hoping that it would get picked up, that someone would fall in love and want to publish it. I remember being really concerned that like, oh, is this a sound too much like quote unquote fan fiction? Like is my is my style I don't even know, like too amateur or too like is it not does it not sound like a real author? Which now I think is just ridiculous. And I think that it's such a strong suit being able to have that uh, voice. Yeah, have have that voice. But it just feels like my voice. Like yes. I don't really think about it that much, about right. where it came from or how it developed. But now that like there's there's fandom for my book. For you. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, I just couldn't I couldn't even imagine what that would be like, you know, before I, I had books and people started submitting fan art and writing fan fiction and coming in cosplay and all of these incredible things. And I think for me, having been in the fandom, multiple fandoms for so much of my life, like I know where that love comes from. And I know that yeah. people don't just write fan fiction unless they really have connected with these characters and they don't just decide they're going to spend hours or days or weeks coming up with a costume unless they really love this property and this character. And so for me, I mean, I just think it is just one of the greatest honors of my career, knowing that people connect so strongly with the books that they then mm -hmm. are inspired to go off and create their own things from them. And I, I just yeah. think that's amazing. Yeah. It's not something, you know, if, if someone wants to do that, that takes a lot like to, to be motivated. There's so much content out there. They could be moving on to the next thing. And instead they want to spend more time with your world, your characters. Exactly. Do you have time for a couple more questions? Like one or two more? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Cause I want to talk a little bit about that and what you're talking about with the fanfic. Um, your, you said your favorite toy as an infant was a soft, squishable book. One of your first words. <laughs> this is what my parents tell me. I okay, do not right. actually remember the soft, squishy book, but right. evidently I never went anywhere without it. I love it. Oh. Uh, and one of your first words was story. And as mm -hmm. we've talked about, you started writing fan fiction at the age of 14 and that you knew you wanted to be a writer as soon as you realized it was an actual job. To say that like writing is life, people say that about you feels very literal rather than metaphorical, <laughs> right? It doesn't seem like you could stop even if you wanted to, which why would you want to? And you've already talked about how long you had that dream and how how deep it was for you. I, I wanted, what does writing give you? And also, what does publishing give you? Because even before you got your deal with Macmillan, you were putting your work out there, blogging and and participating in, in these writing communities. So I, I wanted to know what, what it gives you. Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, I had such an overactive imagination and still do. And I can't ever remember not having a mind full of stories. And that's part of why I started writing stories when I was just little. I would tell stories to my mom and have her write them down for me. And this is something I'll talk, sometimes talk about is that when I was growing up, I was a terrible sleeper. I had a lot of nightmares and had a lot of trouble falling asleep at night. And part of 
that was because I would have these stories just playing like movies in my mind and I just couldn't turn it off. <laughs> and as I got older and I started writing the stories down, it was like that release and being able to put the stories on paper, get them out of my head. And suddenly I, I started to be able to sleep at night. And so that was such a powerful discovery to know that like these stories, I can do something with them. And then you get a little bit older and I started sharing stories, you know, fan fiction online and started having readers comment and respond to them. And even though I was always doing it for me because I had stories and I felt like I have to do something with them, I can't keep them bottled up, to then have the response from readers and to know that there are people not just reading them, but enjoying them, like getting some pleasure out of it. And maybe they swoon and maybe they cry and maybe... You know, that was a great couple of hours that that story, you know, I got to spend with that story. You know, it's a, it's a huge honor to know that there are readers that want to be involved in the story and care enough to come back to reading the stories again and again. So, yeah, I never could stop. Even if I stopped getting book deals and nobody wanted to publish me anymore, I would still be writing. It's it's a part of who I am and it's never going to go away. But I am very grateful that I do get to do it as my job and that this is my career now and every day, well, not every day, but when, when things are going well and I have the time, I get to sit down and I get to come up with stories and discover, you know, new worlds and create characters that I love and go on these epic adventures and it is fun. It is what I love to do and what I want to do my whole life. And I just feel really, really grateful that I get to do this as, as my job and also get to share it with other readers. It hopefully brings them some joy as well. Your, your enthusiasm is enthusiasm, infectious. Enthusiasm, that's what I was yes. just going to say. Yes, Seriously. yes. But, but also, I love go, going back to our first conversation about fate versus free will, right? You could mm -hmm. otherwise think... This was something terrible. I couldn't sleep. I had these stories in my head. There were, you know, another person might have said this was such a bad thing. And instead you were like, no, this is, this is what's happening. And let me find a way, an outlet, find some relief. And then, oh, look at this enjoyment. And oh, look at this. It's a job. And oh, look at this. It's my whole life. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, Very and back inspiring. to our story of mothers, I know my mom was really concerned <laughs> when I was growing up. Yeah. And, you know, my bedroom, of course, being right next to my parents, and I would just pace back and forth in the middle of the night, and she could hear the floorboards creaking. And, you know, she talks now about, you know, oh, Marissa, she never slept. I was so worried about her. We didn't know what to do for her. And I think she, too, was pretty grateful when, when the story thing started happening. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Did who did you find that outlet? Uh, you know, or did did she suggest it, or someone like maybe maybe you should just get a pen and paper and write this down? Or no, I think no. I discovered it. I guess. I mean, yeah. it's all kind of blurry. I don't really remember too yeah. well. But yeah, I my mom will tell stories, and I have vague memories of being like, okay, mom, I need you to write this down for me, or like I need you to yeah. type this up for me. And then, That's of course, great. going to school and you know doing writing exercises and classes and that sort of thing. And I think it was in first grade where they have you make like write a little story and then you illustrate yeah. it and you wrap it up in like wallpaper I don't know if that was something everybody did and turn it into an actual little book and that that assignment stuck with me a lot like yeah. oh, I made a book look this thing oh I wrote gosh. this yeah so so I think I think it was coming from me for the most part 
Yeah. I had, yeah. we did that in my, it was my first grade class and mm-hmm. I basically just cribbed Shel Silverstein's The Missing Piece, but I loved <laughs> that book and I wrote my own version yeah. of it. And I thought mm-hmm. I was like, I really thought, I remember being on the public bus with my mom and being like, oh, I wrote this. This is like my yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a yeah. cool thing for, for kids who, you know, have been read yeah. to and, you know, hopefully you've got a shelf of books at home and like to realize this is something this I is- can do. This yeah. isn't out of my grasp. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. If fate will have it. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, true. So, <laughs> I love it. So we always ask our authors about this. And since we've been talking fate versus free will, I wanted, I would have interjected back then, but we like to save it towards the end. So Corinne mentioned we have this white knuckle grip. We're both like this, very control freak. And and we do like to find ways, like she said, where we can think at least in part that things are a little bit outside our control. And one of the ways we do that is astrology. It is just mm. for us sort of a way to understand ourselves, understand others. And so we always ask our authors, what's your sign and do you relate but we already know your birthday. So do you relate to being a Pisces? We, I can already tell from talking to you. I can sense all this <laughs> Pisces. Yes. But, but do you relate? Dreamy, creative. Yes, I do. It's so funny because yeah. I'm not really into astrology. I actually like tarot a lot. I do tarot readings for myself, which is kind of my <gasps> way to like get into that intuition and explore my subconscious. Me too. Yeah, on a more conscious same. level. But just yesterday, my daughters just had their birthday. Yes. So they are Scorpios. They are also a water sign. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And so I was like, girls, we're both water signs. And they were like, we have no idea what you're talking about, mom. <laughs> we, we talked a little bit about what it means in the astrology and all. But no, for me, definitely. I, I do relate to being a Pisces. We're, we're, we're old souls, us yes. Pisces. But creative and, you know, try to be flexible. Mm-hmm. And I, I do. Dreamy. I feel like I, I inhabit mm-hmm. a lot of the, the characteristics. Yeah, my daughter, yeah. you said, you've already said so many things that my daughter has already gravitated towards, like can't sleep, thinks about stories, yeah. goes <laughs> to like some wild place with something that had happened. And then all of a sudden it becomes something so much bigger. In fact, she was just on the way home from school was telling me a story and it was based on something that had happened yesterday. And then all of a sudden just went wild. I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it's but that. But tarot yeah. is like a new obsession, relatively new obsession. And so I have to just follow up on that. So I've been give, reading them myself too. And kind of for some of my friends, though, I don't want to become like the circus clown. But so how do you use it? Like what is it, what is it the practice like for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm not great at it. I actually want oh, to get better. I've started yeah. watching YouTube videos to like learn more about the the process and like how mm-hmm. how do people actually do readings? Because yes. for me, I just shuffle the cards and you know pull out a couple cards and then what does the book say this means? Yes, um, is about that's the extent. That's us. <laughs> that's us. Um, so. Right. But one of my good friends, Kendara Blake, also a wonderful YA writer, we were on a writing retreat together recently, and I brought my deck of tarot cards thinking, oh, this will be fun. You know, when we break from writing, we can do some tarot readings. And it turns out she is like really good at reading tarot. And so I was inspired by her skills to like, okay, I want to get better at this. And what was your question? How do I do it? So mostly I will just do it to like set an intention or, you know clue myself into what am I feeling? You know, if I'm facing a decision, I might do a tarot reading just to kind of try to 
yeah, get into that intuition. It really mm-hmm. opens your eyes, I think, to things that you're already thinking and feeling, but maybe aren't conscious of. Yes. That's exactly yes. right. It's it's uncanny to me, really. I, but it I mean, is. No, there. I've had some bizarre tarot stories where they are just so weirdly spot on. Yeah. Yes. And we've had so yes. many writers tell us they use them yes. or they'll, they'll go to see someone or, or they'll use them for themselves just to much like you've just described to, you know, pull out what they're probably already subconsciously thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, oh, I think it's a wonderful tool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go do YouTube videos now. Yeah. Yeah. No, better. there were some good ones. I was finding some good ones on there. <laughs> okay. YouTube. It's such an amazing resource. What did we do before YouTube? <laughs> I don't know. Well, Marissa, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. This has been just such a delightful conversation, and you really highlight so many things that we talk about all the time, and it was great to have another perspective on that and be able to unpack it a little bit more. So thank you for being game for that. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Good. good. Thank you, and good luck on tour. (sighs) Thank you. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen.com or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.